Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 13, season 1, and today I speak to Dr Matthew Ford, a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex. Matthew has done a lot of work on soldiers, the, desi the design of weapons and their impact on morale. He spoke to me about this subject from his office in Sussex. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in machine guns, rifles, morale and technology? Tom, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I, I, I didn't have an interest in small arms at all, actually. Uh, I was actually uh, previously uh, working for PricewaterhouseCoopers and IBM uh, in their IT strategy uh, uh, group. Uh, and I came away thinking I always wanted to do um, something about armed forces and technology and change. And I approached a potential supervisor at King's College London and um, I put to them a series of ideas as to what I could write about when it comes to thinking about how technology shapes change in a military context. And I started off with aircraft carriers and they went, no. And I said, tanks. And they said, no. And I said, rifle. And their eyes lit up and they put a big thumbs up. And I, the next thing, I, the last 20 years, I've been doing things to do with guns. So uh, um, it, it's not a, it, it, you know, it, 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 as a complete initiate, I've had to go from knowing nothing to spending a lot of time working with people who really did know their their, their onions um principally uh in the old mod pattern room uh with richard jones who was uh has just retired as editor of james infantry weapons i spent a lot of time with richard he's a real real expert um and it was a privilege to spend a lot of time working with him uh they moved to the royal armories in leeds uh he's handed over some of his um uh, expertise to some good people up there um but um I think the great thing about working with someone like Richard was is that uh, I didn't, I wasn't talking to anyone online about guns. And if you go online and talk about guns, what you find is is that, with all due respect to everyone talking about guns, because I'm probably going to annoy people on Twitter now, but um, uh, there's really not that many people. You know, it's 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 just a, there's everyone knows something about a gun, but not not much is well known in much detail. So um, working with experts like Richard, uh, I was a real privilege, and I learned a huge amount. Of course, all the failings, uh, uh, you know, he, and he tells me all the time, you, you miss this, you don't understand that. Stop being such an idiot. Um, uh, you know, that all comes out every so often, typically around Christmas when we have a conversation or he sends me a reminder. Uh, <laughs> so that's how I got into it. Um, I, I've switched out a little bit now. I'm not doing, I'm not doing so much guns now. I'm writing about uh, digital technology now. Um, but the great thing about writing about small arms was is that they're they're relatively simple devices there's what you know in a rifle 120 the, the complexity is quite limited maybe 120 components and so it's really i'm not going to say easy because you know you can see everyone online not demonstrating that they aren't doing any research but you know if you do research i mean going back to archives and looking through um uh, regimental histories and uh, uh bureaucratic archives from the ministry of defense or war office or whatever um you find that you can trace the arguments because you know the arguments associated with them are actually easier to spot um because of the simplicity of the weapon of, of the weapon itself now the fact that i could write a book uh this is a plug weapon of choice just in case you can also i've uh, you know when you 
Tom, no doubt we'll link to my profile somewhere, but on academia.edu, you can also download for free, just in case you don't want to buy the book, my PhD. But my PhD is not my book, I'm promising you. Um, uh, but um, Weapon of Choice uh, is really a book about how different parts of the those who involve how how different people different constituencies are involved in weapon design uh relate to each other so soldiers engineers civil servants sort of scientists civil servants um, and bureaucrats uh, alliance partners and then industry and how do those different layers of um, community uh, interact in order to design um small arms so and it was about and, and, and using small arms you could learn something about how who was influential within this structure? Who, who was important? Who had power? How they used it? What their understanding of the battlefield was? How those different understandings uh, clashed or related? How science, engineers tried to make sense of that? How scientists tried to resolve questions around things like what was more or less lethal? You know, uh, everyone quickly dismisses bureaucrats, but, you know, the problem is, is that scientists and engineers argue a lot, can't resolve their differences. So bureaucrats eventually have to decide because a decision has to be made um and so a technology comes out of that then you've got to put it through your alliance partners and then industry somewhere along the lines has to build it or in fact as i came to conclude now you can you can see changes in power relations between soldiers engineers scientists civil servants alliance partners and industry over a hundred year period which is my book and in the last 20 or 30 years, what you've seen is, is industry really shaping how soldiers understand the battle. Um, because actually the level of expertise within the state uh, associated with designing technology is really rather limited because it's been privatised, it's been hollowed out. Uh, and the net result is, is that industry is driving change in a way that it might not previously have been able to, given the distribution of expertise between the public and the private sector the last hundred years. And that's quite an interesting thing because when I'm, I've moved from analog technologies like rifles to digital technologies. And of course, that's what you're seeing now. You know, digital technology is driven by uh, very sophisticated uh, Silicon Valley businesses. And, you know, they are shaping what the armed forces think they need, irrespective of whether they actually do need them. So, and, and that's where I've been coming. I've given you a long answer, Tom. I may be more longer than you were expecting, but there you go. I will get back to rifles. So what we're going to look at today is the, of the socio technical relationship i think you've coined this term between soldiers and their weapons and how this shapes their motivation on the battlefield could we start by looking at what theorists have said and i suppose the the big elephant it would be about what our friend slam marshall has said about the ratio of fire yeah i think um well sla marshall is really very influential um on all things to do with weapon design, certainly in the 50s and 60s. Um, of course, historians, you know, the ratio of fire is basically that, what is it, only 20, 25% of um, uh, uh, an infantry section or squad will actually use their weapon and the rest will be silent or will have, you know, uh, disappeared into the background. Not, they're not, you know, it's it's something, they're not, they're not killers, they're not, they're not, Really, and and so his his view was is that they need soldiers need to be trained to do that. And the engineering implication for people who were designing small arms after the Second World War was is that we need to design technology that will encourage soldiers to shoot. And so the question was is how do we take away any embuggerances that otherwise might limit a soldier's willingness to fire their weapon? And so. Um, Marshall really was seriously very, very influential for engineers working in this space because it actually cleared away a whole series of arguments that would have been taking place in the interwar period 
and actually much earlier as well, to be honest, all the way back to questions around muskets over rifles uh, between line infantry, if we go back to water, you know, between line infantry and uh, the rifle regiment, the rifle, the rifle brigade. Um, uh, so it cleared away a lot of those arguments um, uh, because it was not about um, controlled fire or rather, it was about maybe about controlled fire, but it wasn't. It was allowing taking allowing the soldiers to use their initiative rather than to be direct. And previously, it was all the focus was on marksmanship and direction, or there was a stronger focus. And there are a lot of different reasons, and they are in many respects very good reasons. So I'm not trying to discount suggest that one one scenario is better than another. But um, Marshall really by going by going out into the battlefield uh, and collecting post after action review um, uh, reports and uh, posing this really rather dramatic, making this dramatic claim that so few people use their weapon. You know, it was very, it was very important for the infantry to respond to that. And it was very important for them to respond to that because really nuclear weapons implied that the future battlefield would not be one where um, uh, field armies would necessarily be the, Points of decision in war. Um, uh, so this was the, so adopt developing new small arms that would um, demonstrate the utility of the in a conscript type environment or in a in a mass army type environment. Environment um, uh, was a very useful thing for engineers and for the infantry themselves. Um, the problem was, is of course, as historians have now come along, is is that you know um, a, Marshall is a very divisive character, precisely because of this odd statistic that he's come up with and it's a statistic that several people i think successfully i'm thinking principally robert engen um uh in in canada and tom brashino who i had a conversation with um uh on another podcast sorry tom i've got to advertise there uh, 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 the, uh, the war room podcast which is online as well um that that you know they uh, they point out all of the inaccuracies and half truths and other bits and pieces that Marshall presented as fact. But once you pick into it, start to peel away as it's not quite true. Can you apply that same stat to every army in the Second World War? No, you can't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's, so, so Marshall's argument starts to flake. But, you know, from an engineering point of view, he, he provide he furnished engineers and, inf- and those infantry that wanted to modernize with the arguments that they needed in order to um, go from to, to adopt automatic automatic weapon fully automatic so that's the starting point so how would you characterize the relationship uh, a soldier might have with their sort of rifle over time how this how this how has this been shaped by changes in tactics doctrine the mechanization of weapon and maybe the rise of cruiser weapons like machine guns lewis guns and other such uh, small arms development um so I think the first thing to say is, is that the, the, the rifle underwrites, uh, the engineers are designing a weapon that underwrites the social contract between officer and men. Yeah? If the rifle doesn't work, then there's something failing in that relationship. Yeah? Um, and what you're really what, watching over a hundred year, hundred year period is, a, I think, a change in martial culture, certainly in Anglo-American, maybe more British, I can certainly say for British I think it applies to some extent with the Americans. So there's a different set of um, martial cultures in Russia, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, Soviet Union, and Germany. Again, in uh, uh, you know, I, it's, it's hard to generalise when you start talking about France and Italy. But there, there are similar. And one of the problems, of course, is, is that because these technologies all look the same, the suggestion is is that they all are born out of the same military cultures, and that's not true. Each country has a particular 
reason for adopting uh, a particular weapon. That that weapon, you know, a Lee Enfield, a short magazine, or a Lee Metford might look like a, a Mauser, but it doesn't mean that they are the reasons for their adoption are the same. Uh, there there are all sorts of unique reasons for adopting uh, these different technologies, and these different technologies have slightly different capabilities, if you like, that need to be teased out and understood. But to go back to your question, you know, uh, if if engineers are underwriting this relationship between officer and man, um, and and the state and the citizen or the state and the subject, and if they don't work, then that implies something really rather um, fundamentally wrong in the way that the the state is asking the soldier to go out into the field, sacrifice themselves in order to do something that is uh, that they've been directed to do by the state. So um, in this in that respect, I think it's that the the small arms are 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 much more important in underwriting the social contract within the within the because guns after all are the means by which you survive as an as an individual and the means by which the officer can achieve their um objective military objectives as directed by the chain of command so in one technology you do both these things you survive but you also carry out your order now the, what you see i think over time is as a change in paternal relationships so I mean, I, my research can probably go back to the Lee Metford and maybe some bits of the Martini Henry, but, you know, British Army in the 1800s, 1880s is, is very much focused on not really being sure that the, the soldier can be trusted to use their weapon in a way that would achieve the military direction, the military objectives of the officer. And so the, the soldier needed to be observed and directed and under orders and could not use their initiative and, with, and specifically, I'm talking about line infantry regiments rather than the rifle brigade. So there's a there's a cultural difference, if you like, between those two, uh, which we can tease out if we want if you want me to. But it, it, let, if we focus on line regiments for the time being, and uh, um, in the 1800s, um, uh, uh, as they move to a county system, of course, um, you know what you what what you want is to know that you've got enough ammunition in the baggage train that you've got that you're going to you're not going to run out of ammunition that uh, you're going to use the the you're going to be able to hit targets properly that you're not going to be wasteful or um uh and and it, you know the result is is that uh if you if you don't look out uh you're in the middle of um some far flung part of the empire at the end of a very long supply chain and soldiers don't do what they are directed to do and actually the overall military objective fails so under those circumstances you need officers to be and their ncos to be in the rank and file making sure that soldiers are doing what they're told um and that is a process and what you're seeing is that the technology the lee method embodies that you know it makes it, it um there's a cut magazine cut off the magazine cut off allows the soldier to shoot one round at a time uh they also have a magazine uh, the magazine can be engaged by disengaging, can be revealed by disengaging the magazine cutoff, which allows you to fight, shoot um, uh, uh, ammunition from the magazine, uh, take magazine up into the into the um, rifle chamber uh, and, and fire. And of course, that implies a greater firepower. But the danger is, is that, you know, you're, you're firing your rifle. But without any, you know, out of nervous reaction, out of not, out of not being trained properly, out of not understanding the circumstances that you're facing, out of not really engaging properly with the directions of the officer, um, and then you waste all your ammunition. So you, you, you know, the the, the point there was is that the army, um, and there was a lot of arguments between, you know, 
uh, people like um, uh, the Duke of Cambridge, the Rifle Brigade, um, uh, people like Wolsey, as to how you know how you would increase you know that if you increase firepower but then you waste all your ammunition then you're not going to achieve your military objective and actually it was more important to be thinking about training and logistics than it was to be worrying about whether you could increase the rate of fire now move that forward to 1950 and actually that's that scenario is starting to change you know when is it that um is it that the soldier can be trusted to fire in the right way to shoot at the right target. No, it's actually that they aren't very good shots and that they've never been really very good. And, uh, you know, um, before we started, we were talking about Spencer Jones's excellent work on the boards. Um, and what you noted, what you noticed about the British Army was it wasn't, it wasn't a very good shot. And that's why you came back. Lord Roberts insisted on, you know, um, having uh, boys shooting clubs and all this other stuff, stuff like we were, like we were um, archer, you know, the, the longbow and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you'd have butts and you'd, you know, small boys shooting clubs and the rest of it to try and improve the quality of marksmanship within society more broadly so that when soldiers were recruited, conscripted or be, or joined as a professional, they already had some understanding about how to use their weapon. But this, this inability to shoot and hit targets is a repeated feature over the entire 120-year period that I've studied small arms, at least in an Anglo-American context. And so the issue in the 50s and 60s was how do you get to the point where you might actually hit a target? Well, here the the, the, the question was is about increasing the rate of fire. But the rate of fire, the interesting thing is, is that the rate of fire itself doesn't necessarily help you in, uh, increase the probability of achieving a hit. It, you know, that's why they started investigating things like um, salvo weapons, where you pull the trigger and multiple rounds go off at the same time so that you increase the possibility of the spread of these rounds hitting your target. So there's complicated mathematics in there and there's complicated relationship between your level of expertise in shooting and your capacity to hit the target. But Marshall made all of that possible and that that you, what you're watching now is a drift further and further towards very highly professional armed forces where close quarter battle and very, very controlled use of uh, firearms uh, is is a marker of your professional status. So you go from paternalist uh, approach to small arms use to prof- highly professional close quarter battle, you know, uh, stacks and drills and other bits so that you can engage um, uh, uh, in very complex environments with very, very, very precise and controlled use of discharge of your firearm, where soldiers are brought into that culture uh, and to work in a dr- according to a drill, but also in ways that reflect what they understand to be the problem rather than what they're offering. I think you know, one thing that also that Spencer was talking about when I, when I certainly when I was having a chat with him about the Boer War was the idea of this gun culture that many of the Boers actually had. You know, at age 14, you, you get a rifle and how this has a motivational impact you know maintaining a weapon as a symbol of your manhood it feeds you on the on the belt it defends your community from either the zulus or the british or whoever do you find those cultural saliences are really important uh, in other contexts i think i mean it's 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 it seems to me i mean i i gave you a long possibly a long-winded but a long answer introduction to what i was working on in terms of and I, I plugged my book, Weapon of Choice. Um, but uh, the the final chapter there is on industry. And what industry in the last 20 or 30 years has understood is, is that the gateway to influencing regular armed forces or the green arm uh, as to what technologies they should buy is by 
um, uh, working with and through the special forces. And so the special forces community have a particular place in framing what might be considered to be Gucci or Ali, you know, to use those British terms, British military terms, you know, what is it Gucci? You know, you only ever want to go into war with Gucci. Um, uh, and so you it's not just that you, 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 you can do the job, but it's also that you can look the part. And so doing the job and looking the part are actually part and parcel of the same thing. And so the firearm becomes part of that exercise. You know, um, a friend of mine told me a great story about an Afghan National Army uh, um, soldier who was on stag outside one base in Afghanistan. And, it, it, you know, what was cool was to have your firearm uh, position just directly down on a hook on your um, uh, on your body armor, right? Of course, um, uh, American ally, American Anglo-American units, uh, especially American units, could could do that because they armed with the M4, uh, and you know the 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 weapon was not going to brush against the ground or you know it was very easy to move it from from down below i i don't know whether you i don't know whether they're going to be seeing us on it's just going to be a, they're not going to see us okay so well you can't see tom can see but um what you can't see is, is i'm moving my hand from sort of a horizontal a vertical position to a horizontal with an m4 is very considerably easier given that the balance of the weapon and its size and length and all the rest of it um now uh the 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 Afghan National Army was equipped with Kalashnikovs, and the, and and Afghan Afghans. This particular Afghan was was shorter than quite a few of the people who were on stag with the Anglo Americans that were on stag with him. And you know he also used put his Kalashnikov on a on a hook. But the problem was is that the the barrel of the gun was dragging uh, uh, through the ground. Now you know why did he do? <laughs> Why did he put it on a hook? Or it had the potential to drag through the ground. Why did he put it on a hook? Well, because that's how it, you know, it's about looking Gucci. It's about looking cool. This is about how to bring your firearm to your to your shoulder quickly. There's some utility to it, but it's also demonstrating that you're understanding how the, you know, and there, there may even be some drills in there. You know, this is understood to be a good drill. But also, it's not that only that you can do the job, but that you can look the part. And uh, it seems to me that not enough is focused on when it comes to that you know some firearms are have a visual attraction um above and beyond others and that's partly because the the cultural associations and the the the, what what is viewed as um gucci is shaped by stuff that is happening uh partly by industry trying to influence special forces partly by special forces defining a number of things that are appropriate for them. You know, they've got all the status associated with being in combat more regularly than the regular army. And therefore, there is a kudos associated with their gear. If you're an industry, you know that. So you sell to special forces and try to influence green army decision more broadly by making them all envious of uh, um, uh, the SF. So that's so. I mean, I you know, and there are and and that 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 cult that, those cultures. Now I'm talking about specific. You know, there there are clearly unit cultures. You know, I took the rifle brigade. You can't be you, you can't you can't talk about um, any, anything to do with the rifles and then not. <laughs> you know, the rifle plays a particular and unique role in shaping regimental identity uh, for them. Um, you know, uh, the Royal Marines, the Pathfinders. You know, talk, talk about the paras, right? The pathfinders, you know, they've for a long time they've not carried SA80. 
Uh, now, on the one hand, it's because the S80 is quite heavy. Their pathfinders, they need to be light, flexible, maneuverable. You know, they're dropping in before everyone else. Uh, they're guiding everyone else to the uh, landing site. So obviously, they're going to be not carrying a, an SA80. They'll be carrying some M60 equipment, an M4, an M4 carbine, or a, a DeMarco, whatever. Um, uh, now, that's obviously a military requirement, but it's also, you know, makes them gucci you know, that's uh they're making themselves unique uh and that has that carries through that carries through i want to look like that i want to be them i want to you know how do i how do i uh how am i uh how do i look alley interesting you said that because I, I i play a game called armor three and i select all the weapons based on exactly what you said because their <laughs> ballistics are all the same but they look good <laughs> it's really go. really the vanity is just you know oh god i'm doing it as well which leads, yes. me, leads me to the questions about confidence and soldiers and weapons, suggesting that some units don't have a confidence in the SA-80. Um, and this sort of leading to, are there negative impacts of sort of people's perception of weapons? Often the SA-80 has a lot of early problems in terms of reliability, M16, Sten, many other types of weapons. And have these, have these actually had negative impacts on the battlefield? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, it, there is one of the, uh, when you're introducing something, it's really essential to win that, it's all you know. You've got to create. You're 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 winning over the hearts and minds of those to use a sort of counterinsurgency doctrine type frame, uh, which normally the armed forces apply to everyone else. Uh, but that you know, if you're an engineer, you've got a challenge. Your challenge is how do you make how do you how do you design something that soldiers will want to use and that have that they have confidence in, and that implies, it seems to me, that engineers and their associate uh, all their associates in the chain of command and uh, within industry and all the rest of it need to organize themselves in such a way that they can demonstrate that the weapon does what it says it does without bits of it falling off um, and you reference the SA80 SA80A1 is a great example of a technology that um, failed to be perfectly honest uh, you know um, there's lots of interesting bits about the SA80. I don't go into it over a long period of time. But, um, you know, uh, the army de- were totally um, in favour of the SA80 and the Enfield weapon system as a family of small arms in the 90s. That it was a big away day, um, and the general staff turned up on mass, and uh, the uh, engineers at Enfield one of whom had worked on the EM2, uh, uh, Ted Hans, um, who was an appre- apprentice. A Royal Small Arms Factory apprentice during the EM2 days in the uh, um, 1950s, uh, 40s and 50s, um, was responsible for designing an Enfield weapon system, which is a bullpup uh, design weapon in 4.85 mm, uh, ammunition. Uh, and, the, and the army were all over it, right? Now, by t- but the reason why Enfield designed it was because they knew that the orders for the SLR had run dry, that they'd finished building Jimpy, um, that, you know, they could could carry on building things like um what are we, what am I thinking about the um the 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 grenade launcher can't remember, what's that called I can't remember anyway so they, they could build that they could build things like um other other uh, other guns and uh other bits and pieces but what they needed was a big order for um small arms that would sustain them as an organization into the 80s and 90s uh otherwise they were looking at being rolled up and privatized or sold off or wound down uh by the government now the government had actually made the decision the british government had made the decision in the late 50s to stop all design work in small arms and so effectively in 1973 when they were talking about the Enfield weapon system uh it was a skunk works it was a it, this was a bunch of designers who 
with with the um, support of the directors of that factory, decided that they would try and work something up that would potentially save the factory from closure. Um, so, the, so we know I know that the army were, were really into the SA. By the time they got it and got it into service in 1991 for Gulf War One, Granby, of course the thing didn't work, uh, and happily the campaign was only what the ground war was only four days or so and so therefore there was no real opportunity for the army to discover to put itself if if there had been casualty british army casualty as a result of the weapon failing in combat it would have been all hell as it was there was no ground war to speak well there was a ground war, it was four days worth and it was all deep strike and um you know tanks and uh, uh uh, capturing Iraqis who were surrendering. Um, the, where the problems started was when they realised that the weapon didn't work in the training, as the sort of pre-deployment training in in um, various uh, pre-deployment drills. And that's where they really started to see that uh, things weren't working. Um, now it took that really that really punished the SA-80. You know, to, to, to give out a few of them in 1986, 87, 88, where they don't work, okay, you could probably cover that up or whatever. But in deployment, you know, the noise around this thing not working becomes really difficult to uh, uh, withstand. But, it, you know, the, the Tory government had um, decided to privatise SAA and the army were in a situation where privatised, sorry, the SAA, privatised Royal Ordnance Factory. And at the same time, there was some discussion as to whether in order to sweeten the privatisation, they had awarded the contract for SA80 to the purchasers of Royal Small Arms Factory, i.e. British Aerospace. Uh, and you'll see that in the records um, associated with the Parliament. Um, what, what the Tories could not do was get caught... Uh, out by privatisation of um, uh, Royal Small Arms Factory and suggest and, and the implication that the S- that, that had been a failure that the SA80 had failed and that it had failed in part response to uh, privatisation. So they sat on it for three or four years, worrying about it bit the, the technology failing because of gas system or something else, ammunition or da 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 da. And it was only really when the 1997 election happened uh, and one one. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel um, uh, pulled, threatened to pull the SA80 off the NATO uh, agreed weapons list. The, the government suddenly went, oh, crikey, we really cannot be allowed to carry on pretending that this isn't a problem. So, you know, you have only with a new government could this issue be properly addressed because uh, it was symbolic of a series of policies that uh, need to be demonstrated to have worked. Um, and so that's that's quite catastrophic because effectively it was only until the, what euphemistically was described as a midlife upgrade uh, in the late 90s and early noughties was it that uh, SA80 became, went from a, 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 a pipe dream in the 1970s with the Enfield weapon system to a properly working weapon. Uh, but uh, in the initial stages of Operation Opticana, which was when the Royal Marines Commando were deployed to Afghanistan after the initial successes of um, forcing the Taliban out of uh, uh, Afghanistan. They all took uh, SA-80A3 with them. Uh, and pretty shortly afterwards, the Sun started to break stories about how this weapon had was failing, wasn't working. That SA-80 was a rubbish weapon, it's still a rubbish weapon. How can we be doing this despite all of the work that we've put in? The A2 upgrade is rubbish. And now why is that? Well, the reason for that is because the Royal Marines Commando had so closely associated the A1 with 
failure and were so keen to a- acquire a weapon that looked the business and because they wanted to go down the, M- the uh, um, M16, M4 carbine route, they, they were, they've been interested in doing that for some time, uh, that they actually went about breaking the weapon themselves. Um, by putting mis- by not following the drills that have been told uh, that they had been asked to follow, uh, and the net result was that uh, when a British um, team of um, engineers went out, it was a very big emergency um, involving the chief of the general staff, uh, everyone getting in a their knickers in a twist, and so they sent out a team to establish what was going on, and they pretty quickly established that the Royal Marines themselves were breaking their weapons effectively stamping on operating rods and bending them out of shape putting a1 bits into an a2 weapon but you know heckler and cock who were responsible for the midlife upgrade threatened the british government with uh, to sue the british government for reputational damage and that started to shift things along um uh so that's how bad you know if you're going to get your reputation um, wrong you can really get it wrong you know if you if you if this weapon look you know the reputation of the weapon is that bad then it leads to all this bizarre behavior um which needs to be carefully managed um otherwise you really do have uh, outcomes that produce other uh, negative outcomes um if the royal marines had actually been in a, um, a combat situation they would have been in trouble in 2001 too which leads me to think how do weapon designers actually factor in ideas of motivation and so what what how does that shape the design of their weapon and how have they got that right over time or have they not got that right over time yeah i think um uh the i think this is where i it's a good question it's a it's a question that i'm not sure i can answer really as uh, uh, in a in a direct way i sort of uh, maybe maybe all the other answers to my question your questions have been indirect as well roundabout as well but the, um uh you know i think engineers need to there's a reason why there are lots of rails on you know um, picatinny rails on firearms because people associate rails with all of the extra unique bits of gizmos and tech that make a firearm look gucci um you know batteries and other bits and pieces that will uh, give you your your weapon the kinds of capabilities that you might see on on um a, sh- a first person shooter a cod or armor or something um uh and so i think that they are very conscious of that, and they are very conscious of that in terms of things like the shot show which is the um the big uh um business to business uh, small arms show over in Las Vegas, which happens every year. You know that's an opportunity where they can, where engineers can test the market. And you know they, this is where one of those the, the relationship between private sector and public sector purchase uh, helps shape what special forces buy, helps shape then what uh, regular forces buy. Um, there are, of course, great examples. Glock 17. There's a great book on Glock, um, which I can't remember off the top of my head. I have to um, uh, look it up and um, tell you at the end. Um, where you, you know the sales team for Glock were quite happy to take the U.S. police out to strip clubs and buy them dinner, and, you know, all sorts of things to um, police departments to get them to look at the firearm favorably. So it, was, it wasn't just that the the weapon looked really um, uh, uh, had a had a particular aesthetic. It was also that it came with all of the other bits and pieces. You know, the the sales teams themselves went out of their way to effectively bribe uh, 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 potential purchasers by giving them all the you know. So you could 
you, you know, uh, you, you, you'll buy this and we'll throw in these freebies. That was part of the, that was part of their campaign. And it, and it worked. Um, there's a reason why a lot of Glocks are police now. And that's because, you know, once they'd got broken through into the market, everyone started to see it as a, as a, a particular weapon that had a, uh, a certain type of appeal. And you can see it in films, you know, you can see it in, in, in all sorts of media where it becomes a, a iconic uh, and, a, and that itself, and engineers, you know, on the one hand, the function is important, but the form uh, and how we make the form look the part so that it can play this role, you know, and, and not every weapon, clearly some marketing teams are much better um, there, I mean, there was a period, actually, I think, you know, FN went through, Fabric National went through a period of making things very plasticky, um, uh, with, which, which, which you can see, you know, you can see it on some of the Hunger Games films, you know, some of those, there's a uh, Tavor and there's a, uh, was it, uh, um, what's the FN, I can't remember, it's a P2000, I can't remember, I, I'll have to go and look it up. Um, you know, it's got very curved lines, it's a ballpark design. Um, in fact, it's so Gucci that Gaddafi, uh, Gaddafi bought a load and then you could see them in every so often you see them in the Libyan civil war uh, which is fascinating because you, you know that's the other thing about firearms once you once they're out there they're still there you know you, you know the 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 the, the specials are basically what Lee Metford's or Lee Enfield's that have been re you know repurposed um, uh, uh, gone through some kind of uh, uh, maintenance of some kind and then find themselves you know the afghans are using them against the british you know 100 100 years later you know uh, so so once they're there they're not going away um uh and these technologies um and it's partly something to do with their mundanity uh, they're just everywhere they're ubiquitous and so i think definitely one of the challenges for engineers if they are going to make the sale if their if their business if Fabio National Heckler and Koch or uh, uh, Steyr Rheinmetall or whoever it is are going to make the sale, it needs to look the part. So and there, there's a definite aesthetic, there's a definite aesthetic thing associated, which all comes together with special forces, you know, uh, combat status, you know, who's using it. Saddam Hussein gold plated his uh, Kalashnikov. Uh, why do you do that? Well, I mean, there's no there's no military reason, isn't it? You know, it's entirely entirely because he wanted to um show off because i was just wondering whether you know designers over time had sat down and said well this is this is a problem that that, that joe blogs the average infantryman has in combat and um and go through and make the weapon easy light um accurate to, you know all the sort of things that would make you put fire down range accurately but it appears that they seem to spend a lot of time actually making the weapons look good so i'll choose them on the game i'm playing well, I th- part of the problem is, is that users themselves suggest that they're really good at what they do when engineers know that they're not. So, um, you know, it's it's an odd thing to say an inf- the infantry can't shoot straight, but, you know, that the engineers know that. You know, the best way to solve the infantry can't shoot straight thing is don't give the infantry a rifle, just have a rifle that is self op- self-actuating in some way. I mean, the, the impulse to rob- roboticizing the uh, uh, military is, is partly because the military themselves make the mistakes. So if you take military out of it and just make it a robot, then the engineers know that it will do what the <laughs> what they've designed. It can do what the design does. It's designed to do. Now, it, that might not work militarily, but that's, you know, the engineering impulse is to take the man, the person, the human, the woman out of the loop, right? And just have a, a, you know, an act, react, act, or sorry, observe, 
well, it's an OODA loop, isn't it? Observe, orientate, or, or, or observe, orientate, decide, act. A loop such that, you know, you don't have someone in the middle cocking it up. Um, and, you know, uh, you can certainly see that even with in relation to firearm. Um, how do we reduce... Do you design the kit for a user who claims to be an expert but isn't? Or do you design the kit for an ex a user who is an expert and then find that the vast majority of soldiers can't actually use the firearm properly because they never get the time to do the training or they never get the time to um, learn how to get the best out of their weapon? You know, or the, the recruiting profiles for people in the regular armed forces is fundamentally different to the recruiting profile for the expert community who this weapon has been designed for. Um, I think, you know... And, and the other thing, I suppose the only other thing I'd say in defense of engineers is that engineers, you know, they can't break the laws of physics. And it seems to me that, you know, users do want, typically want them to try and break the laws of physics. You know, we want it, we want it to shoot at distance without having big recoil uh, and be able to fire lots and lots of rounds. We want to be able to hit the targets and we want to be able to, you know, and it needs to be light and it needs, and it, and you go, well, hold on a minute. If, if you, if you want to hit, something at distance um it's going to probably be, be bigger have larger caliber ammunition it's going to have more recoil as a result it's going to be heavier um you know do you really need that well and that's where you get these interesting things you know um uh in afghanistan for example you might say one reason why you know the infantryman's ideal is to close on the battlefront that in the british army especially we, we our, our goal is to close Onto, onto the target as quickly as possible. But of course, that's the, the countervailing side of that is the, the reality of the uh, armed forces, which is that, you know, you're on patrol, you need to take everything with you because you don't know how much how much in the poo you're going to get. So, you know, in order to manage your risk, you take as much as you can, which means, of course, you're then overburdened, which then, of course, means that you can't close, right? So how do you compensate for that? Well, you know, either you have more... Um, uh, motorized vehicles carrying your gear um, or you have some kind of ca capacity to reach targets at distance so some kind of uh, mortar or a sniper rifle or sort of different but if you have these technologies and of course that means you're burdening you have you've got to create more burden because you've got to then carry rounds you've got to carry a different type of ammunition you've got to carry a different type of weapon you've got to be trained on that different type of weapon you've got to main you've got a maintenance infrastructure that needs and so suddenly you know, you get into this sort of Van Creveld-like Creveld scenario where the supply chain is it, it, it becomes the dicta dictates the extent to which you know you can actually manoeuvre or do things on the battlefield. And so, there's the, those things are, need to be thought through very carefully in order to uh, understand the systemic challenges associated with introducing changes here and there. You know, if you have multiple kit with different types of ammunition that Im implies much more burden overall than i think most people uh, realize you know it's not just burden but it's also what kind of soldier are you recruiting you know do you um wh where do they fit how are they going to what they've got to learn all of these things plus all these other things and you've got to carry all this gear you know this we're talking about superhuman soldiers here and you know, given the state of, and does that then lead you to only want to produce, create, find more um, uh, elite soldiers? You know, do, are you are effectively making your army praetorian because the technology is driving you to a particular way of uh, procurement. The technology 
has to do this because of X, Y, Z. So the battlefield, the, these imperatives then take on a life of their own, independent of what you might want to achieve, what society is actually able to deliver, what society wants actually in terms of that balance between engineers design which that balance of the social contract between officer and man uh, officer and so, officer and soldier sorry um, and the engineer that underwrites that it just gets very cold here. and finally matthew to bring us out bang on time where can people learn more about your work uh, well i've uh, shall i plug my book again tom you're you're very generous you're very generous at giving me this moment please buy weapon of choice it's only about 20 pounds in all good bookstops bookshops uh it's not the same as my phd so if you want to understand and i've got everything i can put up for free i've put up on my academia.edu page right um i can't remember that you can find me on twitter under war matters if you're really bored then you can follow me there but um uh i put as much as i can for free on my academia page um so you can get a taster but the, uh, just to, just to be clear, the book is not the same as my PhD. I get I got reviewed by Forgotten Weapons. It got that video got viewed by some like fifty thousand people. It hasn't done anything. Thanks, guys at Forgotten Weapons. Uh, uh, but you know the number of people said, "Oh, he's talking social science nonsense." I like that. Those are my favourite. But then they turn around and say, "It's his PhD. It's not my bloody PhD." If it was my PhD, I wouldn't have been able to get it published because it's already been published. It's online. It's free. You don't need to buy. Right? It's a different thing. Um, so uh, you know, if you're inclined, and of course, if you want to um, have a follow-up conversation about these then things, then I'm I'm online, willing to listen to why I got it wrong. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. No problem, Tom. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.